thank you for downloading the latest version of the Political Outsider podcast, the podcast that tries to make sense of the story behind the news. Coming up on this week's episode. Firstly, we take a look at the culture of news in the UK, especially around politicians and how political parties are adopting corporate methods to get around the media. And later, we're going to look at an issue that's largely been overlooked in this election so far, and that's school funding. So there are a couple of things that have happened in the last week that have pricked my attention and may have also caught yours. And that is, firstly, the response to the local election results from the Labour Party, which blame the media for the coverage of Jeremy Corbyn. And the second is the criticism of Theresa May for encasing herself, if you like, in this bubble of supportive voters and only allowing certain journalists access to her. And in fact, shutting journalists out the room sometimes so they don't ask her awkward questions. And that's really interested me because I think what's happening is that political parties are picking up on the playbook of some of the corporates that now have some of the best spin meisters in the world. So what's happened over the last couple of years is that there are various companies that have realised two things. One is that the media landscape is shrinking because newspapers are closing, because budgets are being cut, because journalists are being laid off, and because so much money now is going to Facebook and to Google. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that they've realised that sometimes it's really hard to get their message across through the traditional media, and they feel the media has become an enemy. At the same time, they've started to use social media, and they've realised that everybody on social media has a voice. So they're using this to their advantage. And what these companies are doing is they are setting up corporate newsrooms. Now, I'll give you an example, right? Coca-Cola has something called Coca-Cola Journey. And on that, it's got loads of information about Coke. It's got information about its brands, videos, the food, the history, and so on. And it's, it's kind of like, it's like a newsroom for Coke, okay? So it's got all the stuff you would expect a kind of corporate company to have on it, like white papers, research, images that journalists download and use, a list of recent media coverage and so on. But it's also got much more on, much more than that on there. It's got a broader story about Coke happening. And it also employs writers to write things that aren't necessarily just connected with drinking soft drinks. It's more about the lifestyle. Now, what some of these companies are doing, and Red Bull has a really good one, by the way, also called Red Bull Content Pool. That's one of the best, and you should check it out. The idea is they employ writers and they employ some of these ex-journalists. And those journalists are encouraged to go out into the world and prepare stories and stick them on this website. Those stories don't necessarily have to really directly relate to the company itself. And in some cases, some of the really smart companies are actually allowing journalists to put on stories that don't necessarily take the party line. Now, why is that relevant for politics? It's relevant for politics because... These companies have realised that they're not getting their message across through traditional media because for one reason or another, the media aren't listening. Either they haven't got enough money to listen or because the media are too hostile towards them in the case of, say, Coke, right? So this is a really smart thing to do because what you will find is that the journalists who are left are increasingly going to these corporate newsrooms which are online to download stuff. And Coke hope that in turn that they will start to regurgitate some of this stuff in these in their stories. Also, you know, they've opened up the newsroom to anyone who wants to be interested in it. So previously what you would find 
on a regular corporate website is that there'd be a little link saying media center and in there would be loads of information for journalists but they wouldn't expect anyone from the public to click on it so there's some quite technical information in there there's some industry jargon that kind of thing all that is going. So the line between the sort of media content or content that's designed to be downloaded by the media and then content for the public is blurring. And I think that the politicians are taking a leaf out of the corporate playbook and they're increasingly saying, do you know what, guys? We don't want to rely on the media. We know that the media are, frankly, they're dying in this country. So what we're going to do is we're going to find ways to get our message across ourselves, and we're going to try and go round the newspapers and round the broadcasters. Now, I don't know if you heard it, but there was a really interesting interview this week between Nick Robinson and Paul Mason. So Paul Mason writes for The Guardian, but he's also Jeremy Corbyn's, one of Jeremy Corbyn's main supporters. And what he said was absolutely fascinating because he said basically just that, that the media don't give us a fair go. Even the BBC don't give us a fair go. So in the next years, we are going to have to find a way to communicate with people to get our message across because otherwise we'll never do it. So this is all important because if the Conservatives, for example, set up one of these corporate style newsrooms, and I'd be really surprised if they don't, what you're going to end up seeing and reading in the media is this very filtered, very, very sharply produced content that the Conservatives want you to see. You're not so much going to get journalists and producers asking difficult questions at interview because, frankly, there won't be the resources in the future, even potentially at something like the BBC, to do it. So instead, the journalists who are actually left in the profession, they're going to end up saying, well, do you know what? I need some information about, say, Coke or the Conservatives or whoever it is. I'm just going to go and grab it from this newsroom because it's quicker for me. I'll give you an example of how this works in practice, right? A few years ago, you might remember that there were terrible floods in the southeast of England. There were floods in Windsor and all along the Thames. But what you might not remember is that there were also terrible floods in the northeast of England and dozens or maybe even hundreds of people's homes were flooded out. But did you see it on the mainstream media? No, you didn't. But you did see Windsor and you did see the Somerset levels. And there are two really good reasons for that. One is that the media found it very easy to go down to Windsor from, I'm afraid, London. It's dead easy to get there, which means you can get a cameraman there and you can get a sandman there. And also, because what happened is the media were covering it. They were key Tory seats. The Tories were therefore worried about it. So the Tories reacted very, very quickly and were available for comment and made sure there was a minister, whoever it was at that time, there to do the inevitable photo opportunity to provide the soundbite. Now, the same can't be said for the northeast of England because the media couldn't get there. And frankly, it was a Labour voting area. So the coalition government at the time thought, you know what, we're not going to get any pressure about this. So there's no need for us to go there. And therefore, it never makes it into the national conversation. Now that, in a microcosm, is what's happening to the media in this country. So in the future, when that happens, you will get a slick picture on the Conservative website of a minister in his waders in Windsor next time it floods. And you will get them in Somerset because they were desperate for those votes and because the media made it down there. But do you really think the next time the northeast of England floods, there will be that slick picture on the Conservative website that that journalist can then pick up and reuse? No, you will not. So it's a real problem. Now add to that 
most people are on social media and on social what people tend to do is only follow people they agree with and that means you get these echo chambers of opinion where you don't get anybody challenging you or you frankly get these absolutely you know horrific fights between people and that's it so that means that all these Corbynista social media warriors, for example, as soon as Labour builds its corporate newsroom, which trust me, they will as soon as they cotton on to what the corporates are doing, all they will start to do is spout whatever is being published by the Labour Party on this newsroom, regardless of whether it happens to be true. Now, I'm not accusing either of the main political parties of lying. But what I am saying is that inevitably, like these corporates, they want to present themselves in the best light. They want people to vote for them. Of course they do. And that's absolutely fine. But what they are presenting is not necessarily the unvarnished facts. And if you don't have journalists there to check those facts before they become the accepted narrative, then what you're going to find is this stratification of news where one group of people believe the facts are A and one group of people believe they are completely different or they don't even see the same set of facts. So, you know, if the Labour newsroom in the future wants to put up something saying, oh, there's terrible flooding in the north of England, but the Conservatives never even see it, well, two things are going to happen. One is that increasingly society is going to divide, but also your poor journalists, who do you believe? Who do you follow? What do you cover? You know, when you turn on the 10 o'clock at news at night and you see the five or six stories that are presented on there, it's really easy to forget that there is much more going on in the world than just those things. And every single day, journalists are bombarded by public relations people saying, please cover my story. Okay, so now imagine that you've got two entirely conflicting narratives being pumped out by these newsrooms. And as a journalist, what do you do? You don't have the resources to go and interview both politicians from the, the opposing sides to find out what's true. All you can do is try and put out a piece saying, well, the Conservatives said X and Labour said Y. That is where we're going and it's not necessarily a happy place. Now, what does that mean for you? Well, what it means is that increasingly in the broadcast news, in print and online, you are going to have to challenge your assumptions. You are going to have to think, even for a source as reliable as, say, the BBC, am I getting the unvarnished truth here? Because with the best will in the world, that journalist may not have had the resources to completely check this story. And it may be something that's been cooked up by a corporate newsroom, by the Conservative or the Labour Party. So what you might be being fed is more PR than you might think. The second thing we're going to talk about today is schools and schools funding. Now, the first thing I should say is that I don't have kids, I don't want kids, but regardless of that, school funding is incredibly important to me and it should be incredibly important to you, regardless of if you have children or not. Because when schools don't have enough money, it means they don't have enough teachers or enough facilities or enough buildings and it means that classes are, be are getting bigger, right? So. That means, in turn, that kids are getting lower grades. It means they're coming out with worse skills. It means they're getting worse jobs or they're getting no jobs. And that means that they're increasingly dependent on the public purse. So in the long run, it is education almost uniquely that, that is important in politics. And one of the great tragedies of our political system is that it operates on these five, four, three-year cycles, which means that nobody ever looks long-term. And things like education and health, they are long-term problems. 
So if we don't fix education, basically we can't compete on the world stage. We end up with an underskilled long-term workforce. So even if you don't have kids, don't switch off because what's going on with school funding is not hitting the headlines, but it is incredibly important. So a few months ago, the government announced a new funding formula for schools that shakes up the amount of money that each one receives under something called the Dedicated Schools Grant. Okay, so under that formula, up to 9,000 schools in urban areas are going to end up getting less money, while approximately 11,000 schools in more rural areas will end up getting more. Now, that might seem like a good idea on the surface because it seems to address the fact that there's unequal funding between schools. Okay, but a couple of things arise from that. So first is, as we all know, cities tend to vote Labour more and the countryside tends to vote Tory as a very, very broad brush rule. Not always true, but kind of mostly, right? So what you're seeing is that schools in cities, i.e. Labour voting areas, are going to get less, while these areas broadly, not always, that are Tory supporting, will get more. Okay, now you need to add into that that at the same time, under the next government, assuming Theresa May is going to lead that government, the overall school's budget is going to be cut. So recently, the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which is the independent body that studies government finance, has said that by 2020, funding per pupil will have been cut in real terms by 6.5% for schools. That's before the changes that I've just been talking about have been taken into account. Now, what that means is that Theresa May, before the election was called, started to get rumblings from Tory MPs who were being lobbied about it by their local schools, by trade unions, by local councils and so on. And that's precisely the sort of thing that would have become a problem for her. And that's part of the reason why she called the general election, because she needs this massive majority to push this kind of really contentious change through. Because in some of the areas that will be affected, there are places like West Sussex, right, which is near London, it's Tory heartland, but actually their budget is going to be cut. So they've been trying to persuade Justine Greening, who until recently was the education secretary, to change her mind. So what does the government say about this? Well, Andrew Marr asked Theresa May about this on the 30th of April. And at that time, she had this line that education funding was at its highest level on record. What she was talking about is this dedicated schools grant, which is about £40 billion. And the £40 billion number is accurate, and it is true, in that they've been giving schools more than ever under that measure. But that is not the same as per-pupil expenditure. Literally, the amount spent on every pupil in every state school in the UK. And that is the number that's going to decline by the 6.5% by 2019, 2020. Now, I read recently that that would be the biggest real-term fall in school spending per pupil for 30 years. Now, weirdly, for a political podcast, I am apolitical, or I do my best to be. I'm not making judgments about who you should vote for, and I'm not saying whether that is a good or a bad thing. All I'm seeking to do is draw attention to that fact, that it's this kind of issue that is not really being talked about in this election because it seems to be all about Brexit and all about Corbyn's performance. And my wish, if I had one, was that Theresa May and the people fighting the election on behalf of the Conservative Party started to be questioned about things like health, 
about things like education, because ultimately it's these things that really matter to everyone's lives on a day-to-day -day level. Yes, Brexit is a huge issue and it will be a huge issue for years to come. And however the government negotiates Brexit, of course, will affect us all, but it's not the only thing. So what I would say is last week I covered manifestos. And I said at the time that nobody reads party manifestos. Now, that's true. But what I would say is that it's incredibly important both for the Conservatives and for Labour and for whoever you're going to vote for. Find out about what they think of these issues and find out what they're promising because it is not only all about Brexit. Now, that's about it for this week. So thanks again for tuning in. Remember to follow me on Twitter and Facebook. The handle on both is The Ex Lobbyist. And if you could leave me a review on SoundCloud or on iTunes, that'll help other people find the podcast. And remember that you can always send me a DM on Facebook or on Twitter. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you want to cover. And hopefully I'll see you next time. Cheers. Bye.